Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The Bible does not promote slavery, nor does it directly condemn it. The Bible speaks of slavery as a fact of life, for that indeed was the case. But as we'll see, the teaching of the New Testament especially undermined the most negative elements of slavery and set in motion its end. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, in a message titled, The Gospel, Slaves and Masters. Now, here's Pastor Brian. We come to the conclusion today of the portion of the epistle that is emphasizing our walk as Christians. As you might remember, we talked about the possible divisions of the epistle, and we've been looking at it as the the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the Christian. So Paul speaks to the believers in Ephesus about the relationship that existed then between servants and masters or slaves and masters. The word can be translated either way. So often today we hear people stating these kinds of things. They, they say that the Bible and Christianity have uh, historically supported and promoted slavery. And, and this is some of the rhetoric that we hear today in, in the media. This is uh, what almost every young person on a university campus is going to hear from their professors. And of course, it's a, it's a critical statement. It's a condemning statement regarding the Christian faith. But the reality is, it's not quite as it is being presented. The Bible does not promote slavery. Note that. It does not promote slavery, nor does it directly condemn it. The Bible speaks of slavery as a fact of life, for that indeed was the case uh, when the scriptures were written. But as we'll see, the teaching of the New Testament especially undermined the most negative elements of slavery and set in motion its end. So now, have Christians at certain times supported and promoted slavery? Uh, Tragically, yes. But they did it without biblical support and contrary to the spirit of Christ. So that's what we want to look at today. I want to look at slavery in its original context as Paul addressed it here. And then I I want to take it from beyond that to look uh, a little bit at uh, the subject of racism, which of course um, some forms of slavery have obviously been connected to. But before we get there, let's look at uh, slavery in the ancient world. And I want to quote to you from a uh, writer and Bear with me, this is what he said. He said, slavery seems to have been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves. It has been computed that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt 
and prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody questioned or challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. This unquestioning acceptance of the slave system explains why Plato, in his plan of the good life as depicted in the Republic, did not need to mention the slave class. It was simply there. Uh, regarding Aristotle, for all his intellect and culture, Aristotle could not contemplate any friendship between slave and slave owner. For he said a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So this dehumanization, says the author, of slaves in the public mind was mirrored in early Roman legislation. Legally, slaves were only chattels without rights whom their master could treat as he pleased. Consequently, accounts of terrible atrocities have survived, especially from the pre-Christian era. At the same time, it would be a grave mistake to suppose that this kind of barbaric treatment was either habitual or universal, or that it continued unabated into the first century A.D., in the 50 to 80 years before the coming of Christ, 500,000 slaves have been set free by the government. And in the years immediately before and after the coming of, the, of Christ, the state enacted laws that would greatly improve the plight of slaves. So in Paul's day, Roman slavery was not nearly as harsh as it had been earlier. So that kind of puts the, the subject in its historical Context. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, critics of Christianity often accusingly ask why the early Christians did not do away with slavery. This to them is a huge problem that the Christians didn't deal with this in the early days. Now, honestly, it's not a bad question if it's asked sincerely. Well, number one, simply that was not their mission. That was not their mission. Their mission was to preach the gospel of the emancipation of man from bondage to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense, they, they really did preach against slavery, a different form of slavery, though, a, a, a more permanent and debilitating and severe form of slavery, that is the slavery to sin. So you see, from the, from the gospel perspective, all people are enslaved, regardless of what the their situation is uh, politically or economically or whatever the case. We are all in bondage to sin. So their mission was to preach deliverance from bondage to sin. Now, that gospel that they preached, once received into society, would bring about the demise of slavery, and that's exactly what it did over time. What those who are critical of, of the Christian faith and try to make the connection between Christianity and slavery, what they often forget or overlook or just refuse to acknowledge is that the abolitionists, both in England and in America, were Christians. The whole movement was driven by Christians. It was William Wilberforce in England who uh, pushed for and gave his life 
for the um, abolition of, of slaves in that part of the world. And, and Wilberforce was greatly inspired by and supported by John Wesley, who was the great Methodist leader during that time. So, number one, it wasn't their mission. Secondly, they had no ability to do such a thing for they had no political power. You see, what people also forget is that the early Christians had no political power. They were a small minority group. They were, uh, in most cases, made, much of the church was made up of slaves. And, and they were a persecuted minority. For the first 300 years of Christian history, the church was a minority group persecuted by the state. So they had no political clout. They had no political power. They had no political ability to do that. So those are two things. Here's another thing that's indirectly related to it. Uh, what we need to remember is that ancient slavery differed from latter forms of slavery in that it was not race-based. Now, one of the most appalling things about slavery as we've known it in more recent history is the, the race component in that. I think most people would agree with that. That was not the situation in the ancient world. So whenever people talk about, well, you know, why didn't the Christians do away with slavery? These are the reasons. It wasn't their mission. They had no real power to do it. And slavery was a, a different thing. Some have said that had they sought to do it, of course, they never could have because, as I said, they didn't have the power. But the, the whole societal structure was so connected to slavery because it was the way it was for all, all of time, essentially, that uh, society itself would have disintegrated if something like that would have been attempted. But as we've already seen in the ancient world, there wasn't even so much the thought that that was something that needed to be dealt with. But it, the, the gospel itself did plant the seed for the ultimate demise of slavery. So what did the gospel bring to the ancient slave-master relationship that changed the immediate circumstance of the individual slave? And, and what did it bring that set in motion that which would finally bring an end to slavery? Well, it brought three things, and these things come out in the text that we read together today. Number one, it brought equality. The teaching of the gospel brought equality. And we need to understand this. The apostles' teaching was revolutionary. This was revolutionary. Nobody thought this way. Nobody said these kinds of things. Nobody insisted that there was equality in those times. The apostles' teaching was revolutionary. And what was the teaching? In this new kingdom, this kingdom of God that Jesus had brought, all the distinctions that put a person or a group of people in a place of less intrinsic value, all of those distinctions were abolished. Race, the distinction in race was abolished. Paul, in writing to the Galatians in the third chapter, the 28th verse, he said that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, Gentile is just a, a word that encompasses everybody outside of the Jewish race. 
And, and those were the sharp divisions, of course. Uh, the Gentiles had their own divisions as well. But from Paul's perspective, he looks at it from the Jew and the Gentile. That distinction was abolished in Christ. Class. He said, neither in Christ are, is there slave or free. That distinction has been abolished. Gender distinction, male or female. Paul's point is that all had equal standing before God. See, that's what the gospel brought. The, the, the gospel brought equality, that all had equal standing and equal value before God. So equality, number one. Secondly, what the gospel brought to the ancient slave-master relationship was justice. Justice. What is implicit here in the passage that we read, particularly the ninth verse, let me read it again, and you masters do the same to them, to your servants, giving up threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So what is implicit here in the general instruction to the masters to do the same to their servants is made explicit in the parallel passage found in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. There Paul says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven, and as Paul added here, and there is no partiality with him. So justice for slaves was, again, a revolutionary new concept. Nobody could have imagined this. You're writing to a guy, he's a master, uh, he's a slave owner, his slave has rebelled against him, run away, and, but now he's going to come back, and you say, okay, receive him back as a slave, but oh, by the way, you, you need to really treat him as a brother. In, in that world, nobody would have ever dreamed to say or think anything like that. That's exactly what Paul says, because that was the case. He was now a brother. The concept of brotherhood was Paul's innovation and is one of the major themes of this epistle to the Ephesians. For God's new society is the father's household or family all of whose members are related to one another at, in Christ as brothers and sisters. A message which thus united master and slave as brothers issued its radical challenge to an institution which separated them as proprietor and property. Therefore, it was only a matter of time. Slavery would be abolished from within. And that's exactly what happened. You see, because as I said initially, what the gospel did is it undermined those most troubling aspects of slavery. Now, um, believe it or not, even in the Old Testament period, you have laws back at the time of Moses that also, although it didn't strictly forbid slavery, but, but the laws of Moses definitely took much of the cruelty out of the practice uh, at the time. But so what the gospel does, it just completely, it, it just guts slavery of much of its motivation. And eventually the whole slave thing would, would just die away, at least in places where the, the Christian faith had a strong influence. So that's the ancient situation. That's the ancient world. That's the context that we looked at here as Paul is writing to the Ephesians. So here's the question. How does this speak to us today? 
How does this speak to us today? Well, I think those same three things uh, would speak to us today. Number one, equality. We have to remember that, right? All men are created equal. We say that. And hopefully we believe that. We believe that God created. And we believe that, that all people, every human being, is created in the image of God. That's not just part of the Bill of Rights. Of course, Jefferson borrowed that from the Bible. They, they understood that from the scriptures. That's what the scriptures taught, that all men are truly created equal. But not everybody has lived according to that belief. And apparently not everybody actually does believe it. Racism is a reality. It is a fact. It is still a fact to this day in our culture. Racism in the world is a tragedy and a grief. No question about it. And so much heartache and pain and misery have resulted from racism. It is indeed a tragedy and a grief. Racism in the church is an abomination. It's beyond a tragedy and a grief. It is an abominable thing because if there's one place that racism never should have had any place whatsoever, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, okay, well, why are you saying this? Because we're not racist, and I hope we're not. But guess what? Unfortunately, tragically, sadly, throughout history, there have been Christians who have thought that certain people were in some way, shape, or form less than human and not as highly valued and really not created equally and they have supported subjugation of those people. That, that's been a fact in the history of the church, a sad and a horrible fact, but it's not, unfortunately, something that's only in the past. It still exists today. It still exists today. There are places in this country today that depending on the color of your skin, you might not be welcomed in a church. And this is a great travesty. So may there never be a racist attitude among us. Remember, God said that my house is a house of prayer for all nations. You see, with God, there is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality. So we have to understand that this equality is, from God's perspective, this is a reality. Secondly, justice. As Christians, we should do our best to assure justice for those who are oppressed because of the color of their skin, their social status, their language, perhaps, uh, even their religion. Now, again, in our culture today, as most of you will know very well, there's racial tension. And racial tension has been inflamed. We've seen this. And so it's a reality. It's still there. So there's racial tension in our culture today. There's tension over immigration issues. And we should be working to alleviate that. You see, that's our, our place as Christians is to do what we can to alleviate that. Well, how do we do that? Well, it's real simple. We can start with the commandments of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And listen, it's a, it's a fact. It's a sad fact. P 
people have been turned off to the gospel and, and repelled by Christianity, sometimes because of the attitude and behavior of Christians in this area. And, and once again, let me urge you not to just dismiss this type of thing. When you have a group of people that are saying, you know, we're, we're feeling a little bit unloved. <laughs> we're feeling a little bit unwelcomed. We're feeling a, a little bit uh, discriminated against. We shouldn't dismiss that out of hand. We should listen and think it through. So as God's people, as Christian people, we need to be sensitive to these things. And sometimes we get just caught up in sort of a political mindset and we almost uh, forget our Christianity. We get caught up in more of a, a, a patriotic mentality. There's nothing the matter with patriotism as long as it's balanced by the scriptures. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And so in closing today, there is absolutely no excuse for any racist mentality, behavior whatsoever, zero. There's a zero tolerance level in the church for racism. It should never exist. And, and what it does, listen, what, what racism does is it, it undermines one of the primary messages of the gospel itself. That's why it's so, it's so baffling as to how Christian people have been racist at times. You have to just disregard the plain message of the gospel. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no race distinction, no color distinction. There is no class distinction. There is no gender distinction. We are all one in Christ. And so, again, I, I don't, I'm not giving this message today because I think we have a race problem in our church. Uh, thank God, I don't think we do. I, I'm very happy about that. But of course, things can look one way outwardly, but then internally there can be different things going on, right? So we might not outwardly express any of that, but the question is, is, is there some of that in our hearts? Do we have that in our hearts? You know, I thank God, I was thinking about this. I am so thankful that I grew up with parents who were not remotely racist whatsoever. I don't remember my mom or dad ever, ever one time making any kind of a racist statement. And I'm thankful for that because that's the way they brought me up. And I, I, that never was an issue in my heart or mind. But I know that's not the case with everybody. And I know it's possible that in our own hearts, we can sometimes develop these, these biases and these prejudices. We would never publicly state them necessarily, but yet we harbor them inside. So that's the truth that we have to face individually. And of course, there's grace and mercy. And as we recognize that that's an area where we have not been right and we come to Christ and we ask him for forgiveness, he does give us forgiveness. And not only does he give us forgiveness, but he oftentimes will fill then our hearts with love for that very group of people that we might have secretly despised. That's the power of the gospel. And so let's keep an open heart and a wide open door so that as many as would be drawn 
can come and join the family of God right here. For the month of December, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. Baptism, the gifts of the Spirit, women in ministry, the rapture, and creation. These are only a handful of doctrines that have caused division throughout the history of the church, and they continue to divide today. But the unity of the church is essential for the mission of the church. So in his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, Gavin Ortland provides practical wisdom that can be personally applied when faced with doctrines that have divided. He exhorts all Christians to be honest, tactful, and gracious, because humility is the way to unity. If you want to be equipped to be doctrinally balanced, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.